but I'm, we are most thankful for Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead and uh, is alive and at work in, in this church and in our lives. And so this morning, I'd like us to turn to Psalm 102 and for us to spend the remainder of our time together thinking about, every psalm is glorious, but this morning I'll call it uh, this particular glorious psalm. Listen, please, to, the, to Psalm 102. A prayer of one afflicted, when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. When peoples gather together in kingdoms to worship the Lord, he has broken my strength in midcourse, he has shortened my days, O oh my God, I say, Take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. We are witnessing in our generation rising, staggering levels of anxiety and depression. Rates of depression have written about 10 percentage points in less than a decade to about 30% of the entire population. David Brooks noted that men account for close to three out of every four what he called deaths of despair which would include suicide and drug overdoses. Men are more likely to kill themselves, but they are not more depressed. Gallup News reported that nearly 37% of all adult women say they were diagnosed with depression. And those stats don't include that 37%. Those stats don't include teenagers. Henry David Thoreau's words ring true today. The mass of men live lives of quiet desperation. Despair or hopelessness 
is a temptation that we all face at times. It's a very, it's a very personal problem. It's very difficult to admit you're down, much less depressed. And when you are down, at times you might even feel guilty for being down because after all you know that there's always someone who has it worse than you. And everyone is different. Uh, some of us are just more prone to melancholy. Some of us are, are prone to feel down when there's really nothing wrong. I remember listening to an interview between John MacArthur and John Piper. And John Piper asked John MacArthur the question, you know, are, are you ever depressed? And John MacArthur said something like, well, not a day in my life. And then John Piper responded, uh, well, I can't think of a day that I haven't been depressed. And so you could just see different men, different, different temperaments. Well, where do, where do Christians go when, when despair knocks on our door? Well, we go to the book of Psalms. And, and I think we ought to go to Psalm 102. Now, if you're a Christian, uh, I know that you want to be, as they say, happy in the Lord. I mean, if you're a Christian, you want that. Uh, no, one, no one comes to the gathering of Christians and says, I think I'll be dour today. Like, I know, I know you, you want to be happy in the Lord. You want to rejoice. You want joy, that, that delightful confidence that God is for you, that God has saved you. And uh, to be joyful is really good for you. It's good for your neighbor. Like one of the ways that we commend the gospel to those around us is by living with an obvious gladness in Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Now, if you're in despair and you know that you're not a Christian, well, I hope that you'll listen to the entirety of, of my message and, and this psalm because this psalm really does chart a course for you to understand how you might actually by God's grace, be able to overcome despair in your life. And I know that's, why, that's one reason why a lot of people who don't typically go to church might go to church occasionally, because they're feeling down. And, uh, and, and I want you to know that there's hope for you in the gospel of Christ, and we'll get to that. We'll get to that later. Now, I've got three points, of course. The one in despair, the one in despair, the God over despair. So the one in despair the God over despair, and then the end of despair, the end of despair. And regardless of your circumstances today, maybe, maybe you are despairing right now. Uh, maybe you're not. May this sermon be used by God to help prepare you for that day when you're tempted very much to despair. I pray we'd find in Psalm 1 and 2 the reason and the power to rejoice in the Lord. Well, we begin with the one in despair, the one in despair, and in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist makes his prayer. He, he wants to be heard by God. You can tell that right off the bat. He wants to be heard by God. He fears that God might hide himself. Uh, so imagine being on the side of a road, and your car is broken down, and so you call your dad for help, but he won't answer. In this case, the psalmist fears that, that God won't pick up the phone. Right, he doesn't stop calling though. Verse 2, incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily. Right, he almost sounds a little impertinent. Like, God, answer me speedily. Right, he's convinced that God can do something if only he'll listen. And he knows, he knows that God is the only one who can help him. And that's really important. So you now picture yourself alone in a pit. And uh, it's deep and it's too steep to climb out of. And you're all alone and there's no rope. So all you can do in that moment is pray. Right? And that's where our psalmist is. All he can do is, is pray. So in verses 1 and 2, he asks for help. 
And then in verses 3 through 11, he actually unpacks or describes his despair. His despair is physical. It's physical. Whatever's going on is taking a toll on his body. Look at verse 3. My bones burn like a furnace. Or verse 5. My bones cling to my flesh. Verse 11. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So his body is broken. His days are coming to an end. And that's why I say his despair is physical. Whatever's going on is, is having a toll on his body. And his despair is emotional. And I really do think that's even the deeper wound. Verse 4. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. I could make a joke here, but I don't, I don't want to. There is a despair so, so deep, so real, that, that even something as necessary and enjoyable as eating is something that you don't want to engage in. Right? A man who forgets to eat his bread is a man consumed by despair. So he's not just struggling physically, he's battered emotionally. Verse 6, I am like a desert owl of the wilderness. An owl of the wilderness. And the, the point here is that he's an outcast. He's abandoned. He's lonely. Verse, 11, verse 7, I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. Right? He can't rest. His despair keeps him up at night. Right? His despair is emotional. And not only that, it's public. Like if that weren't bad enough, the physical despair, the emotional despair, it's public. Verse 8. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. Right? His enemies are mocking him. They're, they're saying things like, if God is really your God, if God is really your God, and you are, you are really God's man, you're really God's man, then God should save you right now. But instead you suffer. Where is your God? Where is the God of, to use my, my Hebrew name, Aharon? Oh, Aharon, where is your God? Right? They're using his name for a, a curse. These enemies argue that the presence of suffering in his life proves the absence of God. And so they say he's a fool. Our psalmist is a subject of public ridicule. Now, maybe the most shocking verse in this psalm is verse 10, because here we also see that this despair is, is divine. It's divine. Look at verse 9. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. So somehow... God is related to behind his suffering. Like whatever your theology, wherever exactly you are on this, this topic of, of God's sovereignty, if you believe in an all-powerful God, there is no way getting around this verse. If God is sovereign, he is somehow standing near all our suffering. At the very least, he allows it into our life, but at times, he sends it. The language of verse 10 is, is jarring. He says to God, you have taken me up and thrown me down. It's the language of the sea. It's the language of a storm. Right? This is the, the language of a, of a, of a ship being, being forced up onto a giant wave and then to be thrown down onto the rocky shore. Only, only God is the wave. 
picking up the ship and throwing the ship down. Now, I would say that it really doesn't get more honest than what we see there in verses 1 through 11. Right? The psalmist is crying out in prayer. He's got nowhere else to turn but God. His despair is physical, it's emotional, it's public, and it's divine. Now, what are we to make of this? What is here for us uh, in, these, in these words right here? Well, to start with, these verses teach you that you are not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your suffering. Maybe, maybe you put on a good face, but waking up is hard. And I know I'm not speaking to all of you, but maybe, and maybe just to one of you, but waking up is hard. You don't feel like you want to be here. And it's nothing against the church. You know, you just, it's hard. You spend more energy than you'd like fighting feelings of depression. And you're armed, you, you, you're armed with good biblical truth, solid joys, but it's hard. And so you battle. And it takes a toll on your physical body. You do struggle to eat. You struggle to sleep. And in your worst moments, you do wonder if God is hiding from you. You wonder if God exists. Well, Psalm 102 says you're not crazy, right? Godly men and women before you have struggled, and godly men and women after you will struggle in exactly the same way. Now, that's just a, a fact. You're not alone in the midst of your suffering. I think that's something to be aware of as you go through Psalm 102. These verses also teach you to be honest. Like, what good is it to hide your despair? Not, now, not everyone needs to know exactly how you're feeling. But, but surely someone needs to know. If the psalmist could write out his despair in this psalm for the nation to sing, which is what the psalms are, right? Israel's songbook. Imagine, some of you keep a journal. Imagine turning, you know, May 2nd, 2014 into a hymn for the church to sing. Well, that's what's happened here, right? If the psalmist could write out his despair for the entire nation to sing, well, you can find someone in the church to talk to, to speak with. And I know, this is, I know because I've been here so often, I know that this is the kind of church where people can be honest with one another. Like you just know theologically that, that everyone around you is a sinner. Like that's a pew of sinners and that's a pew of sinners and oh, you too, Right? You're all sinners. You all fall short of the glory of God. And so this is the kind of place where you can open wide your heart and tell one another that you're not doing well. And more importantly, be honest with God. Like mature Christians, they wrestle with God in prayer. They don't just ask Him for things, but they, they, they tell Him what He already knows they tell him how they are doing. Like, don't go to God in that sense with kid gloves on. Be candid. Be truthful. Lord, I'm not doing well today. Lord, I'm struggling to believe that you are for me. Lord, I need you to listen to me. Pester God. Always honor him. Always honor him, but be truthful. Beg him to help you when you find yourself on the side of the road without a car or in the pit alone and without a rope. So that's despair. That's the first point, the one in despair. Right, here's the second point. The God 
over despair. Because in verses 12 through 8, we learn, we learn why, excuse me, 12 through 28, we learn why the psalmist despaired. So this is where you need to listen a little bit carefully because if you miss this bit, some of the rest of it's going to be a little bit confusing. This psalmist is caught up in God's judgment against Israel. Look at the heading of the psalm. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Now that complaint has to do with with God's anger and indignation toward rebellious Israel. This is clear from verse 13, where the psalmist expects God to finally have pity on Zion, right? A reference to the capital city of Israel, a reference to the people of God in the city of God. Now, for that to make sense, you've got to make, for, for it to make sense that he's awaiting God showing pity on Zion, right? You need to know something of Israel's history, right? After delivering the 12 tribes from, of Israel from Egypt, God gave them the law, right? He told them to obey. He promised peace and prosperity in the promised land with Zion as their capital if they obeyed. But that prosperity, again, it, it hinged on obedience, and the people disobeyed, right? They sinned against God who is the the, the very standard of holiness. They refuse to seek forgiveness from God, who is always gracious, but they refused to lean into God, His Word, and so God used the Babylonian army as a cattle prod to drive the people out of Zion. So I think that someone wrote Psalm 102 after the people had been exiled from Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and before they came back to rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah about 70 years later. Now, if this is true, the psalmist is not in despair because he sinned particularly. No, he's more like Jesus in Luke 19.41, weeping over the sins of Jerusalem. He's identi- now, he's a sinner, and he's identifying with a whole landful of sinners as a member of the nation of Israel, a nation under God's wrath, in exile, the psalmist is suffering. Now, that's why the psalmist despaired, and then that explains verses 1 through 11, but what happens next after verse 11? Well, now God gives our psalmist a vision of God. So what happened between verses 11 and verse 12? Well, I think God answered his prayer. God is hiding no more. He doesn't come to the psalmist with a vision. He comes to him in a word, a verbal revelation of himself that the psalmist now unpacks in the remainder of the psalm. And so in these verses, we come to see the God whom the psalmist worshipped. So we should ask, what do these verses teach us about God? God is the eternal king. Look at verse 12. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Right? He's not just the king. He's the king of kings. Right? Uh, One day England will forget the late Queen Elizabeth and the current King Charles. 
God, but God, is enthroned forever and will never be forgotten. He is the eternal king. This is how the psalm ends. Look at verse 25. Um, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same. And your years have no end. God is the creator. God made you. God made the Rockies. God made the Atlantic Ocean. God made seagulls. Right? God made the heavens and the earth. It all belongs to Him. And one day, it's all going to perish. The world will not last, at least not as it looks exactly right now, as it is groaning with frustration. Right? But we're waiting for the greatest renovation project in history when the cosmos is replaced by a new heavens and a new earth, but God will be the same God on that day. He's the eternal King. He is the same, and his years have no end. Not only is God the eternal king, but he is the mighty savior. Look at verse 16. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord looked at the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise. Now there's a lot going on in these verses, but don't miss the forest through the trees. God will build his kingdom. On the darkest day, God will appear in glory to answer the prayer of the destitute, right, the lonely, the needy, the downcast, the broken. I wonder if Jesus had verse 17 in mind when he said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God regards the prayer of the destitute. He does not despise their prayer. Now, Jesus never used the word destitute, but that's the idea here. Blessed are those in the bottom of the pit. Blessed are those at the side of the road. Blessed are those who know their only hope is God. Now, these are the people God saves, right? The humble, the weak, the sick, not the proud, not the strong, not the healthy. Now, look at verse 20. God set free those who were doomed to die. Here he's reminding He's reminding us of the exodus when God saved the Jewish prisoners. They were not free. They were enslaved to Pharaoh. He saved the Jewish prisoners and he brought them to the promised land. Like That's the God he is remembering. That's the God he's praising. God is the mighty Savior. The one who did save will save. That's not all. God is the Lord of the nations. The Lord of the nations. Did you see that in verse 15? Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Right? Go big or go home. Right? Not, he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the nations, right? Not some kings, but all kings. And they're not just going to be afraid. They're going to be saved. Look at verse 22. Here's a sneak peek into the future. Peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. 
The gospel today is not for one nation. It's for all nations. Remember what John saw. We read from Revelation 21. Remember what, saw, what John saw in Revelation 6. A great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Right? God is the Lord of the nations. Somehow sitting in the midst of the rubble of a nation that had been exiled, this psalmist is aware that God is up to something even bigger than Israel. Now that's not all. God is the promise keeper. Look at verse 13. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time. It is the time to favor. The appointed time has come. The appointed time has come. It's an amazing prayer. Like, God, you know, now's the time. The appointed time has come. Now, this is the time that God promised to save a people for his own glory. In Jeremiah, you don't need to turn there, but in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, God promised that their exile that began 586 B.C., he promised that it would last just 70 years. That was a promise that God made. Now, in Jeremiah 30, verse 18, he promised to restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. In other words, I'm going to restore, I'm going to restore my people. That's a promise that God made. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, he promised the warfare in Jerusalem would end and that her iniquity would be pardoned. These are all promises that God made. Isaiah 61, verse 3, he promised the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Now, all of these promises, I pointed out Jeremiah and Isaiah in particular, but all these promises, they find their home, they find their origin in that, that promise of promises way back in Genesis 12, that Abraham would be the father of a great nation and that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. So do you see what's going on here? The psalmist is at the end of his rope. He's without a rope. He's in despair. He's in the pit. He feels hopeless. He prays for help. And so what does God do? Well, all we have are the words here that tell us God reminded him who he is. He's the eternal king. He's the mighty savior. He's the promise keeper. He's the Lord of the nations. So there's a movement in this psalm. Right, in verses 1 through 11... The psalmist is thinking about himself. And then in verses 12 through 28, he's thinking about God. And that's important for us. It's important for us when we are tempted to despair. And what I'm about to say is so simple and so obvious. And yet, like, I literally preach these words and think, why can't I do this? Lord, help me. But here we go. To move from despair to joy, we need to move from thinking about ourselves to thinking about God. It doesn't get much more simple than that. To move from mourning to dancing, we need to take our eyes off of our despair and put our eyes on God's glory. We talked about building a culture, like churches have a culture, right? A culture of not looking at yourself, but looking at the Lord. 
in his little book, The Art of Self-Forgetfulness, the late Tim Keller, said every true Christian should be marked by what he referred to as a, a gospel humility. This gospel humility, he said, is the answer to self-centered despair. Keller put it this way, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, yes, amen. I mean, all just like a one loud amen. In fact, I stopped thinking about myself. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Now, so true, so good, so helpful. But not enough to clear your mind of yourself. You have to fill your mind with God. That's what the psalmist does in verses 12 through 28. He focuses his thoughts upward on God. He moves his attention to God. He leans into God. And so for the psalmist, this short, painful life is nothing compared to God's eternal life. Right? I, 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 see, I see Romans 8 here. For the psalmist, his present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that awaits God's people. Right, the future is a good one. Look at verse 28, the hopeful climax. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Like for the psalmist, Jerusalem's destruction, past tense, is nothing compared to the global kingdom that God will bring through the spread of his all-powerful word, which will, they'll get a little taste of as God brings the people back into the land and they rebuild the temple. But those older men are crying because it's not the temple that they remember and because God has more work to do. Now, what does this mean? So that's, that's a pretty simple point. But what does it mean then for us when we're tempted to despair? Pay attention to who God is. Pay attention to who God is. Don't just read the Bible to figure out how to live better. Read the Bible to figure out who God is and what he's like. Be sure that the first question that you ask yourself when you open up God's word is what does this passage teach me about God? You're not going to be able to plumb his depths. You know, you, you can't ask the question enough. An infinite God is not going to be completely understood by you, but he will ensure you know enough about him to hold you fast. Uh, A.W. Tozer was right. I think what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. If your thoughts of God are very small, your trials will be very big. But if your thoughts of God are very big, your trials will seem very small. I don't mean in any way trials come in all shapes and sizes. Right? I don't mean to, to belittle any trial. Now, don't just pay attention to who God is. Pay attention to what God is doing. Like God is making His name famous throughout the world. Like God is doing that right now in the Ukraine. Right? In Moscow, in, in Chernigov, right? in Gaza, in Israel, God is making his name famous today throughout the world. God's at work all over the world today. We get to be a part of it. One way that you can think less about yourself, which is a pathway to despair, is to, engage, is to care about and engage in missions and evangelism. Go on a short-term trip. Invite a neighbor to a Bible study. Volunteer to mercy ministry where you will share the gospel. God will be famous around the world. He'll be famous in our community, and you get to be his press secretary. 
find a way to serve the nations right here in Winston-Salem. But not only is God making his name famous throughout the world, he's doing it throughout the years, throughout the generations. Verse 12, you are remembered throughout all generations. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. I love that idea that the psalmist had in mind people not yet born. And he cared about them. He wanted there to be another generation that would make much of God. And, and make much of God better than his generation had, which had lived during the exile. Brothers and sisters, you can invest in the next generation right here at Emmanuel Church. Children's ministry is an unusually strategic ministry. When you are pouring into those kids, and I don't care how old they are, infants, two years old, but you go on, right? When you're pouring into those kids, I know, I mean, I know they're, 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 they're not all you know, going to be walking with the Lord. Not all of them, not 100%. We, we, we trust salvation is in the hands of the Lord. But when you are pouring into those kids, you are serving the local church that should the Lord tarry will exist in 2050. So you decide now. You care about 2024? You care about 2050. You care about 2024? Fine, come, keep soaking in the good messages, come to the Bible studies. You care about 2050? If you're physically able, volunteer for children's ministry. It's missions and evangelism. Does life sometimes seem unbearable to you? We don't all feel it as deeply. We don't all feel it as, as sharply. But there are times in everyone's life when we feel like we've been kicked in the stomach and we're out of breath. We're tempted to despair. What do we do? How do we fight? We fight by filling up our mind with who God is and with what he's doing throughout the world and throughout the years. So lean into God. Get busy with God's work. It's how we fight despair. All right, we're not done yet, though. We've seen the one in despair. We've seen the God over despair. But this brings us to the third and final point, the end of despair. Look, if you would, again at, at, at Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. What a magnificent God. <laughs> like we age. We wrinkle. We get sore. Uh, we need sleep. We sin. God never gets old. He never gets tired. He always does what is good. And he never goes away. Centuries after this psalm was written, centuries after Psalm 102 was penned, a young church was tempted to despair. Claiming Christ as Lord brought with it all kinds of persecution and suffering. Honestly, unlike, unlike what we experience here in America, for sure. They wanted to give up. I mean, it was intense enough 
that they, they, they wanted to give up. They, had, they were tired of the ridicule. They were, they were tired of the, where is your God? You know, they're tired of, if he rose from the dead, you know, what's he doing now? They were tired of it. And their faith was so weak. And they were ready to give up. And, you know, they weren't going yeah, to become atheists. They thought, well, let's just go back. Let's go back to Judaism. At least we had our angel worship. At least we had Torah. Let's go back to that. Now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. So the author of Hebrews, he writes that, those people a letter. And he basically says, and I'm paraphrasing, are you out of your mind? You've got to be kidding me. You're going to go back to the worship of angels? You're going to go back to Moses? Do you not realize who Jesus is? What are you thinking? He's not to be abandoned. He's to be adored. He didn't rise from the dead to make your life marginally physically better. He rose from the dead to save your soul. Are you going to sacrifice eternity at the altar of a few days of comfort? Now, to drive that point home, the author of Hebrews took Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, and he said, it's about Jesus. Listen carefully to Hebrews 1, 10 through 12. He's quoting Psalm 102. And he's, even as he quotes it, he's applying it to Jesus. You, Lord, referring to Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Like when you're suffering, to be reminded that your God is eternal and that you're in Him, well, that's encouraging. So the author of Hebrews is saying, don't let your despair pull you away from Jesus. He, he's, he's our everlasting creator. He's our everlasting king. One day all your problems are going to perish with this world but King Jesus will never perish. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. He's the same forever. Now, so that's great. That's just, in and of itself, that's super amazing. But why did the author of, 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 of Hebrews cite Psalm 102? He could have gone to other places in the Old Testament to say Jesus is God. He could have gone to other, other places. Why Psalm 102? Here's why I think the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 102. Because I think he wants us to see all of Psalm 102 as pointing to Christ. Not just verses 25 through 27. Right? In, in the midst of our despair, we are to know Jesus not only as our sovereign king who will outlast our suffering, Psalm 102, 25 to 27, but as our sympathetic servant who endured our suffering. Look again at verse 1. In the midst of his trial, the psalmist cries out, Hear my prayer, O Lord. And we can think of Jesus on his way to the cross, stopping to pray, My Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. 
Matthew 26, 39. He's, he's pleading with God. Look at verse 3. My bones burn like a furnace. Or verse 5. My bones cling to my flesh. And, and I, think, I think it's appropriate in light of the author of Hebrews applying Psalm 102 to Jesus. I think it's appropriate to read those verses and remember how Pilate scourged Jesus, tearing his flesh off his bones with a Roman whip. Matthew 27, 26. Look at verse 6. I am like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. And we remember how Jesus was abandoned by his disciples, Mark 14, 50, and taken outside the camp, Hebrews 13, 13, desolate, lonely, abandoned. Look at verse 8. My enemies taunt me. And we remember how the soldiers placed a crown on Jesus' brow and how they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! I mean, no one has been reviled more significantly, more profoundly, more blasphemously than Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, 29. Look at verse 10. You have taken me up and thrown me down. And we remember Jesus taken up on a cross only to be thrown down into the grave as he cried out, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. Knowing all along it was the will of his father to crush him. He died in the place of sinners. So the suffering of our psalmist points forward to the suffering of our Savior who never sinned and who took the place of sinners like you and me. The sovereign, to put it another way, the sovereign king of Psalm 102.25 is the sympathetic servant of Psalm 102, verse 3. And we need both. We need a sympathetic servant to take our place. And we need a sovereign king to take our sin. Remember these words often sung, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. And when you see this, when you see that he made an end to all your sin, only then can despair die. I have no hope for those in despair who are outside of Christ. The end to despair is tied to the end of your sin. And the end of your sin is found in Christ alone. And when you get that, you realize that whatever you are enduring now is nothing compared to what Christ endured for you to put your sin to death. The end of your sin is ultimately the end of your despair. I know we don't experience it perfectly. But this is how we fight. Are you grieving? Are you hurting? Are you anxious? Are you depressed? Are you despairing? So I want to be really clear here. Only when you believe that Jesus Christ is your sovereign king and your sympathetic servant can that despair end. He is the final answer to your sin 
And when you see that, despair begins to melt in the heat of his grace. Bow your knee to Jesus, the sovereign king and the sympathetic servant. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word, for your wisdom in revealing yourself to us in scripture, and for the power we find in scripture accompanied with your spirit to fight the temptation, to depression, to despair, to anxiety, to grief, whatever it is, Father. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We ask you to help us to be uh, forgetful of ourselves and mindful of you. We pray, dear Lord, that when we struggle to do this well and sin against you, that we would be quick to repent and to believe that Jesus Christ is everything we need. We pray for those in this room, old and young, who've never really bowed the knee to Christ. They've never had the, what they need to, to fight the temptation to despair because they've never been forgiven of their sins. Father, we pray for them today that they would humble themselves before the Messiah. Father, we ask that having been forgiven, we might rejoice like we've never rejoiced before, more deeply, more profoundly than we ever have before. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.